Welcome back, everybody. This is the Messy City Podcast. I've got my friend uh, Butch Rigby here with me today. Kansas Cityan, developer, attorney, film buff, uh, man about town, and, uh, and, and really a great friend. Uh, one of the few Kansas Cityans who actually visited me in Savannah when, uh, when, when we lived there for eight years. So welcome, Butch. I'm really excited to have you here today. I'm delighted to be here, Kevin, my good friend. <laughs> well, Butch, I, I, there's, uh, there's a ton of stuff we could talk about and we kind of joked beforehand, we could probably do three or four hours, uh, you know, at the drop of a hat, but we'll try to keep it short. Uh, and, uh, I really want to talk about, um, I think your path to becoming a developer is really interesting. And so like, People who maybe don't know you that well today, they know you as like big shot Kansas City developer, right? How, how many properties do you own? Um, I've got 17 commercial buildings right now. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, people look at that and they go, wow, this kind of like crazy rich developer, you know, does all these projects everywhere. Um, but uh, the truth is you are really just like anybody else, you started out with nothing started really small and gradually built up over a long time to do this. Uh, so I'm curious, I know I've heard your story before of how you kind of got into doing things, but I think it'd be interesting for other people to know, especially how somebody gets started and then, you know, builds up a portfolio over a longer period of time. Uh, and so I, I think if I remember right, you talked about like you initially started, you, you did a lot of actual construction work on buildings when you were a young guy. I did. I did. I, I, um, was, you know, thinking about going to college, you know, in high school up in Liberty. And my father had died when I was in high school a couple of years before. And my mother was, you know, had four kids and I was the oldest. And, uh, you know, her saying was, you're going to college and you're going to pay for it. And so, <laughs> but one afternoon she, uh, there was a hailstorm up in Liberty and she had this rickety old garage and behind her office building and she got a little money for the roof. Well, my mother, you know, she gets this check and she goes, I'm going to make you a deal. I want you to roof my back office and I'll give you $275. And I'm like, well, I've never roofed and roofed a building. She goes, I know I bought you a book. And she handed me a book on how to roof a house. She goes, I don't care what it looks like. I just don't want it to leak. So I'm like, Hey, that'll pay for a semester of college, you know? So she kept her insurance money cause she needed it to raise the kids. And so we were, um, we were very, um, uh, uh, you know, resourceful. My mother, yeah. you know, my mother kind of instilled that in all of us. So I roughed it and, uh, that paid for my first year of college. And I thought, well, you know, that wasn't so bad. And so as I got down to UMKC, you know, back then it was 15 hours, $275. Uh, plus, that was a, it was a few years ago. Yeah, it was a few years ago. <laughs> I would be, uh, most of the listeners were not born, I'm sure. But, <laughs> but anyway, and so I did that. I was in college at UMKC, a room with four other guys in a house. And my roommate, Paul Simmons, and I uh, figured out we could roof houses and paint houses. And if we bid them right, we'd make about $10 an hour each, each man. And so it was, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was good. I worked, I worked construction and, you know, I kind of worked my way in one summer and I bought uh, a little house for $1,500 uh, out of a classified ad. I bet most people still don't know what a classified ad is either, but mm -hmm. in the newspaper and yeah. we, um, I mean, I think I took a car jack and I lifted the house up and then put, <laughs> con you know, concrete block under it. So certainly learn by doing. Mm -hmm. And 
did everything, sheetrock, paint, uh, wire, uh, plum. Matter of fact, we, we ended up with nine houses as we were going through college, but my my roommate, Paul, he just, that wasn't for him. He didn't like mm-hmm. dealing with the tenants. He didn't like dealing with banks. And so he became a master electrician and a master plumber, although mm-hmm. he won't admit to being a master plumber because he won't do that work anymore. But, mm-hmm. uh, and to this very day, you know, 40 some years later, Paul Simmons has wired every single building I've ever bought. And, hmm. you know, we'll continue to do so mm-hmm. uh, as our retirement theory is pine boxes leaving our houses horizontal. So, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, so I, that's how I got started uh, was certainly buying little bitty, very small houses that needed a lot of work. Why did you, why did you think that was a good idea when you were young? You must've been like what, 19, 20 years old, 19, 20 years yeah. old. Well, I mean, a, it was, it was a low barrier to entry. You could mm-hmm. buy these houses for, you know, 1500, $4,000, $5,000. And I really did have this belief that we were going to renovate these houses and bring, you know, very good environments to people who would be on section eight or, you know, cause they were mostly Kensington gardens, the East side of town. And, uh, you know, we did, we, we, we always, for some reason, we knew to keep them small and mm-hmm. easy, two and three bedrooms, but little bitty ranch houses. And, um, you know, we, we did. They would, they would get rather destroyed every, you know, mo- mm-hmm. most of the time, not all the time. And we had to remodel them again. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was really a good training ground. Did make a lot of money at it. Mm-hmm. And you, but you were doing this like while you're still going to college. Yeah, I was going to college. I, I would, in the summers, we would get up early. I mean, we'd get up you know, five o'clock and we'd go work and, you know, you'd get the full day in and you'd work till night and then you'd go out and mm-hmm. go to Charlie Hooper's, which <laughs> believe it or not was, was there when I was there. And, 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 uh, we, we'd either have a paint job going or we'd be working in one of our houses. And for some reason we bought seven houses of the nine on Kensington Avenue. So they hmm. were Kensington one, two, three, you know, and, and we made a little business of it, but, uh, you know, mostly it was a training ground. Yeah. How long did you have those? How long did you keep them? You know, I had those uh, until the early 90s. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, after college, I, uh, you know, went to law school because I wanted to go to Hollywood and I wanted to, you know, to work, you know, in the film business. And so mm-hmm. I got a law degree because I could be a producer. And I went out to Hollywood and I ended up working on movie crews. Uh, I worked as a grip. I worked as a stunt crew assistant. I, you know, jumped off a building once and onto cardboard <laughs> boxes so I could get a cool t-shirt, you know, <laughs> and, and I did that. And Paul sort of ran the houses when I was in Hollywood. And then I got back and decided I really enjoyed being in Kansas city more than, you know, Los Angeles. And, you know, so I ended up, uh, we, we had those houses a, a few more years, mm-hmm. uh, but I eventually sold them to a young investor that wanted to be in that business because I came up, came to the conclusion that I wanted to buy an office building and really got interested in the idea. So, of course, back in 1994, I went down to what was then just 18th and Wyandotte or the mm-hmm. old Film Road District. There was no crossroads. Mm-hmm. And I bought a 20,000 foot building for $125,000 with parking and Mm -hmm. everything because buildings were vacant down there. Mm -hmm. And I literally just started filling in with my lawyer buddies, just creating Mm -hmm. offices. So, um, it was, it was a great, you know, entry. And, uh, you know, I had to come up with $20,000 down payment and 
might as well have been a million. I, I scraped mm -hmm. it together. But yeah, I was going to ask you that. So that first building you bought it with a bank loan then, or um, yeah, I, well, I got a I got an SBA loan. It okay. was a you know it was a guaranteed loan, and mm -hmm. I went to a bank, and uh, you know, so I didn't have to put down quite as much. Uh, the twenty thousand included some money to renovate four or five offices, mm -hmm. and when I did, um, you know, I I eventually. Uh, met up with one of my buddies from law school, a guy named Wade Kinderger up at Security Bank. And uh, Wade and I have been doing business for 30 years now. And mm -hmm. uh, to this day, he still uh, does business along with other bankers. But yeah, that first one was just bank financing, mm -hmm. fix it up, rent four offices, show them the leases, borrow a little more money, fix them up, rent more offices, keep showing them the leases. And eventually I had 18 lawyers. Uh, the building was full. I didn't know if I was the smartest guy in the world filling my building with lawyers or the dumbest guy in the world, <laughs> but it, uh, it's, but it's who you knew. It's who I knew. And, yeah. and, and I understood how they, what, what they needed. And, and it was really an early version of a, of a shared office. Space. Yeah. I was going to say it was like co-working, but co-working, you know, they yeah. had a shared conference room, shared copier, shared you know, reception, mm -hmm. some secretarial services. Yeah. yeah. And did I remember right that you, you and some other guys ended up doing like a lot of that renovation work yourself on that, on that building or, or how did you get it done with like doing those like four offices? I literally, I would, I would paint it myself. I would yeah. uh, wire it. I would, you know, I had Paul do some stuff. I had an air conditioning contractor come in and, you know, put some new air conditioning in. But if, if there was any lifting, painting, uh, sheet rocking, uh, roof patching, anything, I did mm -hmm. it all. And, uh, I had, I had a law degree, so I was practicing a little bit of law and we had also started, thank you, Walt Disney and the film society and the film festival. So, mm -hmm. but you know, you're, you're 30 something years old. You got all the energy you'll ever need. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely, uh, it's, it's one of the things that when you're young, you've got all, all that energy and yeah. as you get older, you've got more wisdom, but a whole lot less energy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I remember like one of the things you and I've talked about before, in relation to development, like now you own strictly commercial properties Correct. and you're, you're more of a fan of owning on the commercial side, as opposed to the residential. Did, did that come from like the experience of owning those first houses years ago and just working with tenant, those kind of tenants versus working with commercial tenants? You know, I, I will say that the appeal of a commercial office building uh, appealed to me not only because, you know, you work with houses, people come and they go. And, and a lot of people did it because, you know, you pretty much repaint the place and carpet it if need be. And they're in there in commercial real estate. It's a much higher bar to entry, but the architecture is interesting. You know, that first building was the original home to Commonwealth theaters. It had an abandoned screening room. I actually ended up renovating that screening room and made deals with all the studios to show movies. And it was really the genesis of what later would become the Screenland theaters, you know, mm -hmm. circuit. But no, I, I, I just like the office buildings mm -hmm. and it's, I can't really say that I, disliked residential, but it wasn't for me. And, and I think you need to do the things in life that, 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 that give you passion. And honestly, I had an office building that was a home to a movie theater company. And my two passions were architecture and film. Mm -hmm. So it sort of satisfied both. And then, you know, the universal pictures building became available. So I, I purchased it from universal pictures and, you know, and then a, big old giant parking lot became available for almost no money at 17th and central. So I bought it and mm -hmm. all of a sudden they announced the performing arts center and everybody 
goes crazy. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, I just kept rolling one building into the next. And it's a slow, slow way to earn money. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I have to say, you know, if you think you're going to get in there and do it and, and, and quote, flip a building, that, that just isn't going to happen. And every time a, build, a, uh, a building looks like it'll make so much money, you just, you can go back and be on easy street. It won't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what do you mean? I need a $32,000 air conditioner, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I think also you were the first person that I learned that had the, you knew all about that interesting film history. And so like you talked about here, that area where you bought that first building we called Film Row. What was, you know, there may not be a lot of people who understand like here in the Midwest, sure. we had this incredible history with the Hollywood studios. What was that all about? Film Row was the name of the area basically surrounding 18th and Wyandotte. And back in the uh, beginning, you know, days of film distribution, you know, motion picture films until just a few years ago, uh, were on canisters of film, and you'd have six large reels that uh, maybe more that typically ended up, you know, being projected. Well, they had to have a way to get these motion pictures distributed around the country. You didn't have multiplexes. You would have dozens and dozens and dozens of single theaters in any one city or any place and a movie theater in every small town in, in the territory. Mm-hmm. So there were about 32 areas or points of distribution for all the major motion picture studios. And they shared, they shared a lot of common traits. First of all, the seven major studios always had an office. Uh, Kansas City served Kansas, uh, part of Nebraska, Missouri, parts of uh, Oklahoma, and, and kind of a surrounded area there. The areas were, you know, kind of tight and concise. The buildings reflected typically an art deco architecture that was popular when most of them Hmm. were were being built. They were also fireproof because films before 1950 were highly Mm -hmm. flammable, Mm -hmm. nitrate Mm -hmm. film. And so Kansas City happened to have one of the very few intact, fully intact film road districts in America. Oklahoma City had one, but most of them were located just outside the downtown area for fire Mm -hmm. concerns. And so most of the downtown areas in this country, they just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and tearing down buildings to build tall ones. Well, as you know, the the loop sort of uh, isolated our downtown and Mm -hmm. the sprawl of Kansas City, uh, the suburban sprawl of Kansas City, really left what is today the crossroads intact with a lot of two, three, one-story buildings that have a lot of character. Well, Film Row was left intact. I looked and looked and looked all one winter in 1994, 93, 94 for a building. I just got it in my mind. I wanted it. And when I found out that there was a Film Row building available, and I had read about Film Row, Mm-hmm. I went down there and this Art Deco, and, and many people might know it as the home of Maya Yoga at a, you know, between Wyandotte and uh, Central on 18th Street on the south. But it was the old Commonwealth Theaters building. Mm. And I went through there and it was two degrees below zero and Whitney Kerr was showing me and a couple other guys. And you could tell he is just three years the thing had been vacant and they just cut the price in half. Mm. And I saw the empty screening room and said, oh, this is for me. And so, you know, and that's a good point because I love that building. I love the Art Deco architecture. I love the history. So I took all my movie posters I've been collecting, had them framed and decorated the whole building and, and eventually, you know, uh, you know, redid the screening room. Well, all of a sudden, you go in that building and it has a personality. It tells a story. It's 
unlike anything else anybody's ever seen. And people loved it. And, and I realized your passion will be reflected in the things you do. And if you don't have passion, I mean, it's sort of like I was down in Florida once and these guys are all bragging they're playing tennis because their strip centers make them so much money, they don't have to work. And about, you know, three years later after the a mild recession, my buddy who I was down there with said, oh, all those guys are, are all working in a finance company now because they all lost their buildings, you know. <laughs> and and so, yeah, I uh, film row. Uh, had was home to Paramount Pictures, 20th Century Fox, Columbia Pictures, MGM, Universal, uh, and then a lot of small studios. Shirley Hillsberg, who is one of the greats as far as preserving Kansas City's history, is renovating the MGM building and the Columbia building. And I happened to have the old brass plaque from the MGM mm -hmm. building, and I uh, gave it to her, or John Shipp and I did. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and, and I can't say enough about Shirley Hellsberg. She, you know, has taken her resources and done for buildings what nobody can do. Right. I mean, it's great. And so I'm delighted that she's renovating and preserving some of those film row buildings. Yeah. So presumably there was an advantage for the studios to all co-locate, like all right next to each other then? Absolutely. That just made the distribution easier for the yeah. theaters? Or? You think about it, all the films would be shipped into Kansas City. And then every studio, some of them had screening rooms, mm -hmm. most of them did. But they all had an inspection room. And I mean, it was a kind of a stereotype back then, but women would sit downstairs and they would wear white gloves and they'd roll the film and inspect it. They were film inspectors to make sure that there weren't any tears, burns, marks, huge scratches. And they would inspect it, make sure, because the film was being circulated. You know, they'd first they'd go down to the first run houses downtown, you know, the, the Midland and the Capri and things like that. And then it would get out to the suburbs, you know, in its second run. And it might go out to the Granada in Kansas City, Kansas, or the Rock Hill or the, you know, the Brookside. And it would, you know, these films would be circulated circulated around. They called them exchanges because in the very early days, you literally traded films back and forth. You came hmm. in, dropped them off, picked up another. So theater owners from all around, uh, you know, the, the area from the, you know, the region would come in Kansas city. They'd go down to film row. They'd eat at the Screenland cafe, which is uh, the derivation of the name Screenland with that. Okay. My, my company, but they would eat there. They would go look at an MGM picture or Warner brothers picture. They'd look at the latest things. They would do their business. They would go to Steuben theater supply or they'd go, you know, they buy concessions, do all their ordering and do all their business in a, in a location. And they were together because the, you know, the fire codes were very strict. They had yeah. to be in a district that was completely, you know, isolated. And so most film rows were their own little world. That's interesting. Huh? Yeah. That's an incredible thing. And so, and then, I mean, I know just from looking at other Kansas city history that there used to be these little like single screen neighborhood theaters, then all over town, you know, like over in uh, Volker off 39th street, there was one near, yeah. near 39th and bell, which like the building is still there, but, yeah. but they tore off the front, the front, the front of it. Yeah. yeah. The back, you know, uh, the, the last of the surviving operating theaters are the Screenland Armor in North yeah. Kansas City, 1928, and the B&B &B Main Street downtown, 1927, uh -huh. um, you know, that operate as a theater. Right. Um, there are a lot of examples around town of what used to be theaters. Uh, the right. Screenland Granada, uh, we had operating right. for a while, 1929, uh, and it was... Um, 
you know, they're beautiful, but the right. model doesn't work. Yeah. Saying, everybody says, oh, come and open a, a Screenland. I go, Screenland is a real estate company. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that uh, that Adam, uh, Adam Roberts and Brent Miller, who now operate the theater side uh, of the business and are now the owners of the Screenland Armor Building because we mm-hmm. sold it to them, they, they have four screens and they are showmen and they mm-hmm. make me proud every single day. Uh, but again, that was a, a real estate deal. I developed the building and, it, you know, had my passion for films satisfied. Yeah. I don't think, I, I can't remember if we ever talked about this, but, you know, when I was in college at KU for two years, one of the jobs I had was I was a projectionist for the student film series. I think you did tell me that. Told, yeah. Old Father Studio had yeah. such a great presence there. And yeah, yeah I, I learned early on how to project film. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of my managers, that was a big thing. And projecting yeah. film was an art. Yes. Um, it, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, there were some, there were a couple of moments that were really, really bad, you know, mostly it was really fun and easy, but I remember one film I was showing where the sound was off, uh, the, the screen and people were not happy. Oh, and then the only way I didn't even, at that point, I didn't know how to fix it until we got to the second reel. <laughs> <laughs> and then we clicked over to the second reel and everything was in line and people, you know, kind of applause, you know, derisively, yeah. but it was, you know, yeah. it just kind of felt like a little helpless in that moment. You know, it, it it's it's funny. I, I started a tradition of showing Casablanca on uh, Valentine's Day. Uh-huh. And we did this at the original Screenland many, many years ago before everybody was doing it. And it was an old film print. I mean, it was a re- reprint, but it was a, a film print. And I had a completely full theater with everybody paying $60 for a package, wine, chocolates, flowers, mm-hmm. and popcorn. You know, it was great. And the film broke. <laughs> and I had to go out there and entertain the whole audience while my manager, my young manager, re- you know, repaired the film and got it back. And I went back upstairs and I told her not to panic. And she looked. And before she started the film, she stopped, took a breath, went through the whole projector. And I thought, now this young woman gets it. You got to be under control. But boy, I spent many, many years sitting in my theater, hoping the film didn't break or hoping yeah. it didn't burn or hoping it didn't scratch. So I, I have become a real fan of the digital projection, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a, a great film that's now it's an older film, I guess, 30 years old, but that kind of showed the dangers of that, that Italian film cinema Paradiso. Oh yeah. Where they ended up having the fire. One uh, of the most beautiful films. Wonderful. And if yeah. you haven't seen it, don't be afraid of the subtitles. Yeah, it's great. The music alone is worth the experience, but yeah. it's, it's uh, a beautiful film. Beautiful, heartbreaking kind of story. Oh my gosh. But, yeah. yeah. Really One great. of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, so after you, uh, dip your toe in the, in the commercial building market. Then eventually you start doing more. And, and then you ended up with the building where, uh, I used to be a tenant in yes. the, the screen, the original Screenland yes. uh-huh. theater building. Uh, and so how far along were you at that point? Was that like, uh, were you selling other buildings to be able to buy bigger buildings at that point? Or were you trying to add? To no, it? at that point I, you know, I owned the universal building. I owned the, uh, original, um, well, yeah, I, I did sell one. I, I sold the parking lot that I bought across from what is now the Performing Arts Center and the Universal Pictures Building. And then I did what was called the 1031 Exchange. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the profit on that deal, I think I had never seen that much money in my life, but I elected not to take the money and I bought um, a building at 19th and Wyandotte where Mildred's was for many years. Mm-hmm. Um 
And then I bought what would become the original Screenland building. And I actually even asked my banker, my buddy from law school, hey, would you just send me a picture of the check? (laughs) I just want to see it. But I bought this old abandoned ice house and it was literally just giant freezer. Cisco had been in there, but it was the Mid-Central Fish Company building. And, you know, part of the deal was they had to shut down the freezers and drain the ammonia because it had an old ammonia system. And they had, um, you know, we, we, uh, it was probably the biggest renovation, 55,000 feet. But the good news was as a freezer building, when I, I was cutting big giant windows through mm-hmm. three foot thick walls, but they were mostly full of cork. Um, hmm. I think the utilities in that building were less than half of any building I ever owned. It hmm. was, and so that's, that was a 55,000 foot building. And that building really was the biggest to date. It took me a couple of years. Now, by this time, I've got that methodology. I'm not painting, but I am general contracting, you know, mm-hmm. taking care of all my own buildings, you know, and I mm-hmm. hire, I had sprinkler system guys and I had, you know, all the tradespersons, uh, you know, men and women that I was used to working with and, uh, you know, renovated that building from the top to the bottom when we filled it. And I did that building and I did, uh, you know, the building at 19th and Wyandotte. And then I had done the universal building that I had sold, but I kept um, the Commonwealth building. Hmm. And so uh, in the meantime, I ended up buying the Screenland Granada building, which was Mm -hmm. just the old Granada Theater and KCK. Uh, I ended up buying the uh, Armor Theater up in North Kansas City. The city Mm -hmm. approached me and kind of made hybrid deal. They would forgive the purchase price if I would promise to make it into a movie theater Hmm. and spend $2 million renovating it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we did. And, you know, again, it's, it's incremental. I did, I did one, I filled another, I cross collateralized. I didn't take hardly any money out of anything. And one of my buddies often reminds me that even as late as the early 2000s, he bought a car for $10,000. And he heard me say, man, someday I'm just going to go and buy a car for $10,000. I was known for driving the junkers or an old truck, but, but you know, it, it, it really, uh, that building did well. And then in 2007, uh, as uh, a Gibker, you know, local, Mm -hmm. he and I decided he he was going to broker and sell, uh, I was going to sell the Screenland building and I was going to sell my Commonwealth building and I was going to use that money and go buy more buildings. And I did. And I, as, as, as his brother always said, I think you guys caught the top five minutes of the market, you know? And so then I, you know, I kept my armor and Granada for a number of years. And, you know, then I decided I really liked, um, oh, there was a really cool building at 3740 Broadway that I always liked kind of Mm -hmm. a little prairie style building. And Mm -hmm. I bought it. And then I went downtown and I thought, well, East Crossroads is, you know, available. Everything in the West side had been done. So I bought a building at 1701 McGee. And um, by that time, the, the, the young man that was operating the uh, Screenland at uh, the original Screenland Theater, his lease came up and the new owners wanted to triple the rent. And he, I said, well, they need to understand that the theater can't pay that. But right. I understand it. So you guys can move it here. And they ended up taking a little space down at 17th McGee and taking over the operation of the Screenland Armor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, did that and, uh, you know, enjoyed it and was down in my, my neighborhood, the crossroads. The little midtown building was fun. 
And then one uh, very uh, fortuitous afternoon, my uh, the guy next door to my first building, a guy named Byron Pendleton, Byron uh, called me and said, hey, let's go get lunch. <laughs> and Byron Byron was a guy, he runs his company, but he always has always done real estate, you know, so, sort of like me. He got little mm -hmm. rentals and he fixed them up and he bought an apartment complex. And we were always sharing guys, crews. Mm -hmm. And when Byron was renting space on behalf of his company, Byron was doing all the contracting. He was hiring everybody. He was over there and he was driven. And he said, we had to do a building together. And I said, you know, I think we'd, I think we'd work well together. And this was nine years ago. And we looked at a couple and I go, you know, there's a couple of buildings at 63rd and Cherry that I know are for sale. And I, they're in pretty rough shape, but we should go look at them. And we did. This is 2014. Mm -hmm. We looked at them. One was a little A-frame that used to be a bank. And the other was just what they called the Elans Theater, which was really an old brick building that was a school. And we liked them and we made an offer. And at the same time, we looked across the street and there was this big, tall, four-story building, kind of on stilts, looked like a prison, had brick with little mm -hmm. tiny windows. It was an old doctor's office. And next to it was a little squat one-story brick building. The The big brick building was 95% vacant and the little building uh, next on the corner was vacant. The two buildings we were looking at were vacant. Matter of fact, the street from Oak all the way down to Rock Hill was 70% vacant. Mm. And I thought, you know, this has got good neighborhoods north and south. I love what's going on east. It's not there yet. Mm -hmm. And west is, you know, west is old Brookside. Mm -hmm. And so Byron and I made a deal, three separate real estate deals to buy four buildings. We did it. And uh, that is what really was the beginnings of Brookside East. The guy down the street, the Colonel Lassiter, he he dubbed it Brookside East when hmm. he bought the old Blockbuster building. And as much as I wanted to call it Brook 63 or something like that, everybody said Brookside East. Yeah. And the young people love going East and I, and they wanted to be toward Troost. And then John Hoffman and Lance Carlton, they were, they were saying, yeah, buy these things because we want to build apartments at 63rd and Holmes. There hadn't been a new apartment complex in Midtown in 40 years. Mm -hmm. And I ended up buying another building on the street and selling them the land adjacent to what was heirloom bakery because the Stevie family came in and, you know, renovated the old standard station into a marvelous mm -hmm. bakery. And, you know, so there were a lot lot of good people and a lot of good things. And we ended up buying uh, the, the rest of the, oh, on the uh, south side of the street, there's two big, large buildings with the parking lot in between, now home to Plate Restaurant and mm -hmm. to uh, Brady and Fox and Maddie's Foods and BKS Brewery. And, you know, we, we, we started buying those buildings and kept filling them. And honestly, we went five straight years renovating buildings, maybe six years, and couldn't keep up. We would lease them before we'd finish. And at mm. the same time, we bought the old Luzier Cosmetics building at uh, behind Costco, where Billy's Grocery is today. And then we bought the old Bitterman Candy building, which is 31st and Gillum, a block to the east, which is now Urban Mining and Burr's Kitchen. And so we just went and went and went and went and went. And we didn't take a paycheck for seven years. I mean, I owned a couple of buildings of my own that were producing cash flow. And I was, you know, I was at a point where I could live off the cash flow of my buildings while I did more buildings. Mm -hmm. But the key is, the key is real, you know, 
I share my enthusiasm, get buildings you love, share your enthusiasm. Your tenants who have that same enthusiasm will come in and they will make any landlord that much better. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got Robin Krauss. I, 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 I don't want to miss anybody because I've got yeah. so many great and talented tenants, but like Billy's Grocery and then right. Hand and Land and Casey, you know, I, I could go on and on and on about these wonderful people who are um, not only great to work with, uh, but they're small business. Right. And that's, right. that's the prevailing theme of my commercial real estate is- It's almost all local small businesses. All local, yeah. all small businesses. Ni- well, 90% are less than 1,500 feet. Lots of small offices, maybe 15, 2000s. We have, you know, some seven, 8,000 square foot tenants here and there, Plate right. Restaurant and the Smith Bowman Law Firm and Brady and Fox and, you know, uh, but in urban mining. But, you know, we have a lot of small businesses and it's every single of the 200 plus commercial tenants I have, every one of them has my cell phone. Mm-hmm. And I'm not inundated because they realize call Billy or call Selena, you know, my property <laughs> manager or my, my, you know, Billy, my head of maintenance, and they'll get things done quicker and, you know, we'll write up a work order. However, they know that the landlord cares. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, remember a person in a $500 office with their small business, their office is every bit as important to their livelihood as a 7,000 foot tenant. Right. And if you ever forget that as a landlord, then you shouldn't be in the landlord business because every single tenant, it's their, it's their lifeblood. So <clears throat> over in the Brookside East area, so how many buildings do you have now just in that area? In that area, we, we sold two. So we have seven there. Right. Now we just purchased <clears throat> four long truce and like 6,500 truce is a two building package. Okay. And it's pretty close. It's sort yeah. of around the corner. We bought 5930 Troost and um, young woman, Elena Page, uh, has got a uh, talent agency and a dance studio and can't say enough about her. She's terrific. Mm-hmm. And so she's in that building. Uh, we bought 3740 Troost, which is an old 1940 Safeway, streamlined modern, mm-hmm. and we're going through. And the 6500 Troost project is a two-building project that was once the uh, – Southwestern Bell business office. So if hmm. you wanted to go get your phone service turned on, that's where you called and they'd send a truck out of there, uh, the van. And then of course I'm surrounded by people like Jason swords and, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, Mark, uh, Moberly, these guys did the, um, Brookside commons apartments mm-hmm. right adjacent to it. Well, they're stunning apartments. These guys know their business. Well, that makes mine easier because yeah. now I'm the ugly guy in the neighborhood. So mm-hmm. I'm literally can't wait to get the side of my building painted so their tenants can have some belief in the future. <laughs> so let me throw a couple of things at you and see if you agree. Because, I, I mean, I think as I look at like what you've done just as like as an observer, uh, even though I know you, um, I, I think about two things that really stand out that I think have helped you really succeed. So I'm just I'm curious if you agree or not. One is you're probably one of the most positive people I know and just an incredible marketer and promoter for all things Kansas City. And I think that uh, that is infectious for a lot of people. And and they love kind of being around somebody with that positive attitude. It probably draws a lot of tenants to you that maybe other people wouldn't find. That's one thing. And then the second thing 
is you've had a real focus on uh, on your commercial properties on um, a really creative way to do the renovations to keep your expenses low. So you don't go and hire typically a big commercial general contractor to renovate your buildings. You find a way with your crews to do them a little bit of time here and there. Uh, and uh, in order to keep the expenses down so that the tenants you have, they, there are more affordable lease rate than some other commercial properties. Yeah. Do you think that's, you think those are true? Well, those, those are good observations. I mean, you know, I, I guess, you know, I'm raised by a mother who, you know, like you're going to college, you're going to pay for it. She gave me self-confidence and she gave me enthusiasm and she made it very clear that, you know, don't ever think that your whatever gifts you have aren't anything more than gifts and, mm-hmm. and, you know, spread it around. And, and so, but I am enthusiastic and I did learn at a young age, buy a building you think is cool. Yeah. And if you think the building's cool, people will, will, will come there with you. And some don't. And if they don't, they don't need to be there. But if Mm. they do, and you, you talk about their space and let them have some creative room and some input in what they're doing, um, it does, it does spread great word of mouth and tenants do like their landlord. Now, believe me, if it's hot and the air conditioning doesn't work, (laughs) no one likes Butch Rigby, but, but you know, they, they know that you, you're, you're there and, and you're right. Um, you, you do get, you know, you do get that. Now, as I grew and as I got more and more buildings, you know, I, I had a hard time letting go of the leasing because mm-hmm. I wanted to meet everybody. I, I, and I didn't want to oversell them. You know, I tell right. them all, hey, first of all, this is a, a, a legal document. I want you to have it reviewed by an attorney and I want you to understand every part of the lease. I, our leases are middle of the road. And Pat Rigby, my late mother, said, honesty, honesty, honesty. And after that, honesty. You know, you got to be square with people. But, you know, the uh, I did uh, had a law, an old friend of ours, Erin McGrain, mm-hmm. who was, well, is a talented uh, performer. But she wanted to get into real estate. And we went for coffee. And she was trying to decide, do I go residential or what do I do? And I go, well, I like commercial. It's not as easy as residential. It's not going to just... But it's really cool. Well, Erin came in and started working with us. And I got to tell you, she's a natural. Well, mm-hmm. she's a natural at everything she does. Mm-hmm. She's, yeah, again, honest and she's- And enthousi- has that enthusiasm. And yeah. has the enthusiasm. Yeah. And she also has an incredible eye for how things should look. And she's incredibly organized. And, you know, so I have to say she um, she has been a terrific ad. to this very day. She went over to Clemens Real Estate when we started slowing down, you know, where we weren't just leasing every single day. But Clemens and there and Aaron and Clemens and that team represents all our properties. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that way. So, yeah, the enthusiasm's there. And that's because I'm lucky enough to have a passion. That's why that's why, you know, the. My retirement theory involves a pine box horizontal, you know, <laughs> just, um, and, and so, yeah, that's, that, that would be the first one. And what was our second point? <laughs> it was more about the, uh, the way you contract. And oh yes. Yes. Do yes. your renovations. Yeah. The, the, uh, uh, the contracting. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's interesting to me because I've been involved in projects where we had a general contractor, good ones. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I see five people in a meeting that takes two and really could have been done with one. Mm-hmm. And it, it just drove me nuts. And, <laughs> and so, and fortunately, 
my business partner, Byron Pendleton, is exactly the same way. And who, by the way, uh, brings, you know, one and one equals three with this partnership. And partnerships are never to be taken lightly. I mean, we don't, we don't get investors in our projects. We don't do partnerships other than Byron and I go to our bank, we go to Wade, we go to, you know, um, um, first, you know, Morgan at First National or, you know, uh, uh, Great American, you know, Matt Hofer mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, Jason Curtis Solomon or, you know, just all our bankers that we do business with, you know, we are, we're, it's a very personal relationship. But Byron and I, the bankers understand the way we do it. And it took a long time to build these relationships. I mm-hmm. mean, it took a long time for us to um, l- make them understand that we, general contract. We construction manage. Now we use all licensed contractors. We pull permits for everything in the city. We don't Mm -hmm. cut corners. Everything's inspected. uh, And we add elevators. We add sprinklers. We add life safety systems. Usually we'll pull all the brick off. You know, if it's ugly brick, we'll pull it off and put glass, but we won't paint old brick. We love old architecture. So we'll, we'll honor that, especially Mm -hmm. on a, uh, uh, on a uh, historic one. But the truth is by self-managing and self-developing and then turning all that money back into the project, you know, in other words, all our developer fees and all our construction management fees are rolled back into construction hmm. immediately on every draw. Um, by hmm. doing it that way and not taking a bunch of uh, a development money mm-hmm. ahead of time, in the long game, we end up with a more competitive rate. We typically use a lot of uh, tax management tools. I mean, everybody goes, "Oh, you're getting tax abatements. You're get, you're taking money from the school district," but that's that's not true. We, mm-hmm. we all we want to do is be able to manage and understand what the tax structure will be f- as far as we can. Um, and the school district, I always talk to them, and they're you know honestly, if you just Get on the phone with people and understand their perspective and they understand yours. I have found them to be great to work with. And Mm -hmm. we have always developed projects that ended up making more money for the taxing districts Mm -hmm. than the the decades before we owned them. So, you know, it's, you know, it's a lot of things. And I, as a lawyer, even though I don't know if you need to be a lawyer, I formed my own PIA districts and Mm -hmm. I form, I do all my own appearances in front of the council. So, you know. There are a lot of bright developers. Those, yeah, I mean, those are some ways to cost save. If you oh, yeah. if you have a niche or an expertise within that space, so yeah. maybe you know you have the legal background. If you're like me, if you had an architecture background, right? If you had a marketing and sales or brokerage background, like any of those would come in handy throughout. Oh, they all, you know, I've, I've been a broker for forty years. You know, yeah. I, you know the, but I, you know, and I, I literally to this day now it's we're not doing as much right now, but any of the. Uh, credit cards that we use for the company, I enter into QuickBooks because I want to, I want to kind of have an idea what we're spending money on. And I, I kind of know how I want them categorized, but no, I can't do all of that. And and I have a guy, Jeff Westra for 30 years, Jeff has been in charge of my books. And again, another honest guy, uh, meticulous, much more patient than me, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, my company wouldn't be the same without, the company I keep, yeah. I mean, tenants and, and employees, and we have a small number of employees, you know, we yeah. don't have a lot. Well, I think you also told me that that paid dividends for you when you hit the the recession, 2008, you know, 10, 11, 
that that approach that you really lost very few tenants during I, all that? You know, I went through oh oh seven, oh eight, oh nine through ten. We didn't lose any tenants. Now I at the time I probably had five or six buildings, but we didn't lose anybody because, you know, they they you know, they were small business and we worked with them. COVID was probably the best example of why the small business model works. You know, a COVID, uh, when it happened, every, nobody knew what was going on. As Mm -hmm. as we all know, you know, we just, Mm -hmm. we didn't know what was happening. And I had all these small businesses that were told they couldn't go to the office, but we called every single tenant and emailed every single tenant and said, Hey, look, we can't forgive rent because our bank isn't going to forgive the loan and the taxing jurisdiction is going to still charge tax, insurance, utilities, water, all the, all the expenses mm-hmm. are still there. However, if, if you need some time or if you need some deferral, I will defer the rent at no expense, no interest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, worked with my banks and the banks called us. And, and what happened was uh, we, we literally had a um, – um, 200 tenants. And I hardly, I don't think we lost anyone. The only one, you know, the, the boys who run the armor theater, their lease at Tapcade down at uh, 17th mm-hmm. and McGee had ended and they elected to spend their time focusing on getting the armor theater through. Right. So that one was vacant, but then I released it to uh, brick river cider. But, you know, and I remember one day, I had a tenant and her name is Tammy Daniels and she is a real estate broker now, but she had a hair salon and she was marvelous. You know, we'd come up and take care of her space whenever there was a problem. But she comes up to me on that dark day when everything was dead and she sees me and she goes, Hey, here, I'm closing my salon for two months. And I go, Oh, here it comes. And she goes, so here's two months rent in advance because I've been saving for a rainy day. And I know not everybody can do that. And I was so impressed. I was so, I, I knew at that very minute, we're going to get through this. Mm-hmm. I knew for some reason, because I felt like, well, if every, if I go down, everybody goes down and, yeah. you know, and everybody isn't going to go down. So, you know, uh, for, for me, the small business model is our bread and butter. And I truly enjoy going through my buildings, talking to my tenants, seeing them waving. I give building tours and I'm, and, and, you know, one of my prospective clients goes, you you just know everybody in the building. I go, I better. <laughs> so they they love it. It's you know a lot a lot of smart guys do a lot more than I do. I, I think I'm I think and now I'm going to call you the George Bailey of Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I did meet Frank Capra. I did get to know him. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> it's like it's that uh, the building and loan model. Yeah, almost well, to, in a certain sense, it's all it built is, on local people. It is. A hundred percent, you know, and Kansas city is built on local people. Kevin, you know, this, you know, Kansas city is really unique. And, and I think the only people that don't know it are some Kansas Cityans. (laughs) I I, I mean, people come in from out of town and they're just, they, they just love it because we do have green space. We do have a vibrant downtown. We do have, uh, interesting, well, we do have the chiefs, let's face it. We do have the chiefs, but you know, I mean, it, it, it's such a, great city and it's filled my my friends from california come out here they used to live here and they said nobody has restaurants like kansas city i mean you know you guys take for granted yeah you can go to a dozen killer great local restaurants we have to drive 15 miles to get to two or three so you Mm -hmm. know it's it's 
Well, let's talk about Kansas City stuff for a minute uh, and and shift to that. You know, back in the day, we were two of the uh, Urban Society of Kansas City we were. Uh, folks so with some of our good buddies. Uh, I'm curious if you were to think today, as we sit here now, uh, one or two like really great opportunities that you see for the future and, and, and the, on the flip side like challenges that we're facing. So both of us are, you know, urban core yeah. people. So that's really probably more of our interest and focus. And obviously there's a regional focus too. That's sure. interesting. But just thinking specifically about the urban core uh, of the city, what do you see as good and good and bad on the horizon? Okay. I, I see, I see a couple of great opportunities and, you know, I, I, I truly believe if the Royals can go downtown, the, ancillary effects of all that activity will be spread amongst dozens and dozens of small businesses. I think it'll make the streetcar extension that much more viable. And I think it takes advantage of 82 times a year, you know, and a lot lot of people don't agree with me. They don't want to park. They don't want to do this. They think it's Mm -hmm. tax dollars, but I, I think as long as the tax dollars are, 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 uh, on par with what they are now. Um, I'd like to see the stadium downtown because it fills in the last gap. It creates that much more economic activity and a strong, strong downtown is a strong heart to the metro area. So, and I think the other thing that has to happen, and I think is probably even more important than that, is a practical and pragmatic way to develop the east side of our city in a way that doesn't move small business out, but encourages small business. Um, That means there are two kinds of gentrification. There's gentrification that moves people out and there's gentrification that moves people in or keeps them there. Um, As we did 63rd Street, we were pretty conscious of the fact that we were nearing that embarrassing dividing line, you know, that where we had um, a highly segmented racially and economic dividing line in our town called Troost Avenue. And we were, we were aware of that. And so we were pretty conscious, you know, we, we said, Hey, I, we won't be successful developing unless we bring in customers from East of Troost and customers from West of Troost, you know, especially as we got toward Rock Hill road and Mm -hmm. up and down the street. So we were pretty, and, and we inherited some good people. So we had to a recognize as we develop eastward that there is a whole, go up and down Troost, Paseo, Prospect, Woodland, 39th, go up and down there and just start doing a mental calculation of how many small businesses you see. And I mean, we'll, we'll boot the quick trips and the, show, you know, I'm talking about small businesses that you can see and you'll, you'll see dozens and dozens mm-hmm. and dozens. Mm-hmm. Now, You've got to understand that those small business people need to be kind of acclimated. You can't throw them in the in the pool cold. You got to let them, you know, get in slowly. Right. And and so we have to do this in a way that they can be a part of the success and the redevelopment. What we did over at 60, 63rd and Rock Hill, where Brady and Fox and you know everything is, we had a uh, Alvin Brooks' daughter Diane uh, had a hair salon. And she is another Pat Rigby. I mean, Diane had five children, lost her husband early. Uh, you think Alvin Brooks is a hell of a guy. Go meet his daughter. 
I mean, and she had this huge salon and it wasn't very efficiently laid out. I mean, they gave her the biggest space they could and the the rental revenues were not anything that could sustain the multi-million dollars we had to spend on a 40,000 foot building to put new air conditioning in. But what we did was we figured out how to make Diana a much better a much better, more effective space. And we kept a rent pretty similar to what it was as a, as a monthly expense. And she had a much better space, but you know what she got? Beautiful, big new glass windows, a state-of-the-art air conditioning system, a place where her customers come in and they just, you know, they all enjoyed coming there. Mm-hmm. But she is a great example of an entrepreneur mm-hmm. who sat there in buildings in, in, you know, and there are dozens of them who were challenged. And, and, you know, the guys that had her building before me were great guys and they did a lot with it. And I'm, you know, they really um, worked hard and, and, you know, started a lot of that good work. They paved the way for us. But as we develop, you know, you can take the same talented person and I will tell you, there's a lot of hair salons, both, uh, you know, a lot of them maybe with an African-American customer base and some not. But if, if and let me tell you, if, if there is an apocalypse, lawyers and hair salons will be the last two to go <laughs> because <laughs> nobody is going to miss their, their stylist. But yeah. let's say you go into a building and uh, prospect and you go to that salon and people are, people, they think it's great, you know, but a lot of customers come in and maybe the building's got leaky roof or maybe electricity keeps going out. Maybe there's, you know, danger outside, you know, and they don't stay, but you renovate that building and you make that building much cleaner building, a much nicer building. But you remember it's a cool mid-century architecture, same stylist, same people, same customers. Guess what? The experience in the building and in the neighborhood is so great. And then more people come because it is a great place to go. Mm-hmm. Not just the people who want, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a friend of the stylist and I want to be there. Well, you got to figure out how do you not gentrify that stylist out? Well, you got to be willing to create legacy rents for people who were there. You'll fill the rest of your building with some newer tenants and some young people. And young people want to go truced and beyond. Young people of all races, young people of all mm-hmm. economic uh, if you go up and down the 751 East 63rd, and I invite anybody to walk in the building, go up and down the stairs, wander around, you will see, um, A, you'll see in the entire corridor, 70% women-owned businesses. You go to the third floor of 751, you're going to have the Nguyen sisters with their blush nail lounge. You're going to have Stacy and Susan, who are sisters that have that are blonde as blonde can be from Overland Park and have their salon. And then you've got uh, you know, uh, uh, Stellar Image Studios and the sisters who own a video company. And then you've got Precious and Aubrey, the sisters who own another salon. Mm-hmm. And we call them the sisters of 63rd Street. And we've got <laughs> Arbalisha in India that have a vegan soul food restaurant. But, yeah. you know, they all share one common bond. In that building, we have an incredible demographic mix, racially, economically, you know, more women than men. But, you know, that's Nobody ever gave the women a chance. Yeah. Think about it. What, what chances did women have, you know, even 20 years ago to have to be entrepreneurs? But what they did find was they had a better work environment and better work environments lead to better uh, uh, customer bases and better customer experiences. And we also tell them all, if you have any questions about bookkeeping, come and sit with us. We'll go have coffee. I'll talk about QuickBooks. 
I'd say QuickBooks is the most important thing they could learn. So I'm very excited. But what's going to have to happen is we got to quit making a dirty word out of tax incentives. They're incentives, you know. They're not developer get rich things, you know. They're really not. I mean, it's a lot easier to build a strip, uh, you know, center at 119th and Medcalf where you're going to for sure get, you know, tenants are going to pay $28 a foot or you Mm -hmm. might get a McDonald's or you might get some national stuff. I mean, that's making money. But redeveloping and and making the difference and making a change, we got to prospect. Lumber costs the same to build on Prospect as it costs to build on 119th and Metcalf. And so does concrete and electrical work and air conditioning. But, you know, so you do have incentives. You do say, okay, the thing hasn't produced any taxes for 20 years to note. Now, all of a sudden, it is producing taxes. It's producing maybe not, you know, as much as in a fantasy world, oh, the building's worth $2 million because you put a million and a half in it. Well, it probably isn't worth $2 million. <laughs> But you know what? You, you, you agree to pay a little bit more every time. Then the sales tax happen. And then you, you, you start building stability with small business. And again, they're more stable than the McDonald's of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're not going to leave. They're going to be there for generations. So I'm excited about those two. But again, I, I think John Sherman is a real Kansas Cityan who is passionate about making this town better than, you know, when he leaves it than when he found it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in a lot of ways, kind of what you described to me sounds like the the difference in focusing on people that are here and helping them be successful. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And, uh, as opposed to leaning on out-of-town money coming to save the day. You know, the, it's kind oh, yeah. of all of us working together to figure out, yeah, how do you help an entrepreneur that, you know, might be struggling or new to it? How do you help them succeed? Uh, I have more fun. And we, you know, I have had a very good track record with startup businesses in our buildings. No, no track record, but they're excited, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be a small salon owner or uh, a video company or, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, Maddie's Foods over at 63rd Homes, you know, they, and BKS Brewery. Mm-hmm. These two were just, you know, small families that had their, uh, you know, had their idea. Maddie's was in a food truck. Now they've got a restaurant and yeah. BKS was working out of his house and now he's got a brewery. It's an incredible brewery. Too. Oh, it is. It's, it's really so, good. Brian yeah. and Mary are fantastic. Great atmosphere and everything in there. I'm so impressed with that place. Yeah. So. That's where uh, Barkley Advertising started, by the way. Oh, is it really? Yeah. From advertising back then at that building at 63rd and Holmes. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, we're coming up on an hour, so we should probably wrap it up. Um, yeah. so this has been great, Butch. I, I almost feel like sometime we ought to, if I could figure out a way to get like six people on a microphone, we should have a whole discussion about incentives and development policy and, and just kind of see where I, that goes. I think it'd be a lot of fun. I, I think that generally speaking, the more people would understand about incentives, the more they would encourage them. I mean, even Crosby Kemper, you know, when he was leading the library, said he thought 63rd Street's PIA district was the most productive one he saw, and he was happy with it, and he supported it. But again, it's it's just remembering that we as a community, you know, we do need a good education, you know, school Mm -hmm. system, and we do need good mental health care, and we do need all the things those property tax dollars deliver but we got to be smart about it. We yeah. got to. We, we also gotta, have to have people living here, development activity, right. people investing, 
or if we if we don't have any of those things, then we don't have any tax revenue to support those oh, jurisdictions. Yeah. I mean, hey, you're going down to plate restaurant on a weekend in an area that ten years ago nobody would have set foot on, you right. know. And he's right. serving great food and 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 people love it. And yeah. they're yeah. And and there there is a reality to the fact that uh, unfortunately everything involved with uh, infill redevelopment is more expensive and harder. Oh, I mean, we're, we're, we've got to sink six wells up at 6,500 Drews to monitor the environmental impact and we've got to remove asbestos and yeah, it is harder. Um, It's rewarding. They're not going to build uh, those mid-century buildings like that anymore. Right. They certainly aren't going to build the old stone places around this town. So we need to figure out how to do that again sometime. Yeah, that's a, we do. That's a different discussion. We do. But uh, I need to introduce you to a guy named Clay Chapman sometime doing some really cool stuff with um, brick, uh, triple white brick masonry new construction in oh. Oklahoma. Oh, wow. So yeah. I think you'd be fascinated by that. Uh, okay. So what I like to do uh, at the end is this is called the Messy City Podcast. And so mm. I like to ask my guests to think about a place that kind of fits that description that's a little more just kind of funky and organic, could be a city could be a neighborhood, you know, some place that comes to mind that that you really love personally, uh, and uh, that you think about as a as a place you like to emulate or learn from uh, or just enjoy. Well, there are so many. I, I mean, sure. I and you're well traveled, so yeah. it's tough. You know, I I'll tell you what I I really enjoy with my wife uh, Christy, and I love to drive around. I. I really enjoy going over to about 75th Street where all the Drummond houses are. You know, uh-huh. there are these mid-century, uh, you know, California-style houses. And you can get lost over there, over on the Kansas side. You can get mm-hmm. lost over there exploring and looking through this neighborhood that this that this architect designed all of these I call them Palm Springs houses. Uh And I think that that, you know, I've become a big fan of mid-century over the years. I was, you know, not so enamored with it when I was younger, but now I think it's beautiful. And so I would love to see more of that kind of architecture. And then if you drive east of Troost uh, in the 65th, 66th Street area, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of that kind of architecture there. So Mm -hmm. I, I'm very enamored with that, uh, residential area from about, uh, you know, the landing. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited about a future for the landing. Yeah. I hope it's not yeah. a big box store. I hope it's, yeah. I, I hope it gets rebuilt for what it was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think there's some opportunities there. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And you're a big part of the reason why for all the stuff you've done. Me and work many, many it. people like me, like you say, I'm the one good at getting publicity. My, my business partner works just as hard, if not harder than I do. And yeah. he, uh, he goes, that's fine. You're the spokesman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let you take all the, uh, all the arrows and the attention. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Butch, this was great. Thanks a lot for doing it. I really appreciate it. Uh, Kevin's great as always. All right. Take care. Right. Thanks.